Well, this morning I've decided to take a break from the book of Luke, and we are going to take a look at a passage that is probably familiar to many of you, uh, and it's familiar probably because you've seen it on something, a book, a trinket, a card. Uh, the verse I'm referring to is Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It's graduation season, and this is the classic graduation verse that, again, you'll find on cards and keychains and all the rest. And in one sense, this verse, as we will see, is a sweet reminder of God's goodness. And yet I believe that it's a verse that is oftentimes misunderstood or misapplied. And so it's helpful for us to look at it together. Too often this verse is taken out of context. It's just slapped on something, someone reads it, and they kind of make it for their own what they believe the verse is saying to them. It's taken somewhat of as a promise that God has good things planned for the person and left undefined, those good things are filled in the blank by the individual in their own perception of what good is. And I think in context of graduations, we can think of setting out on a good life, having a, a successful career, getting good grades in college, and potentially making it well in their jobs and doing, being successful as our society defines it. And so I believe what is often, this verse is often used to interpret that God has plans for us that is narrowly defined as worldly success and material prosperity. But the context of Jeremiah 29 shows us that God's plans for us are much bigger, much richer, and much deeper than simply those surface-level concerns. And so I invite you to open your personal copy of God's Word to Jeremiah 29 if you're not there already. Jeremiah chapter 29. The promise of verse 11 is spoken in the midst of exile for the nation of Israel. Israel is being disciplined by the Lord for her sin. In order to understand what exile means, we need to do a review of Israel's history. Some of us have, are maybe well acquainted with the Old Testament, with the Old Testament story of Israel. And others of us, even though we've been around the church maybe for a long time, we know bits and snippets of that story, but we don't know how it all flows together. But the Bible is one continuous story beginning in Genesis chapter 1 where God created the heavens and the earth. And out of that creation, he had two people, Adam and Eve. They fell, they sinned, and cast all of their descendants into sin, Genesis chapter 3 tells us. As a result of that sin, there was continuing consequences flowing out of that sin. 
And it resulted in a worldwide humanity that was in rebellion against God. And so God decided to start over and sent the flood and wiped out most of humanity except for saving the family of Noah in the ark. Starting over with Noah didn't show that there was all that much difference. Noah himself was stained with sin and that began to show even in his family. But out of Noah and his sons grew the nations of the world as recounted in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. But then as we get to Genesis 12, God selects a certain family out of all those nations, the family of Abraham. And God gives certain promises to Abraham that he was selecting him out of all the families of the, of the world, that he was going to put his blessings upon him and his descendants. That promise gets repeated to Abraham's son Isaac, to Isaac's son Jacob, and then to Jacob's 12 sons. That promise is given then to all of the offspring of those 12 sons, which developed into the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel is then sent from the land of Canaan down into Egypt, which is where the book of Genesis ends. Exodus picks up with Israel multiplying greatly. God is blessing them and giving them many descendants and building them into a nation but they're oppressed by the Pharaoh in Egypt, and so God has to rescue them out. And that is the story of the Exodus, God redeeming a people for himself. He rips them out of the womb of Egypt and gives birth to them as a nation and brings them to Sinai, where he then get, makes a covenant with his people, something he's never done with any other people. He makes a covenant and pledges himself and his character to the people of Israel. This is his special chosen people, and he has a land set aside for them, the land of Canaan, and so he says he's going to bring them to that land and he, he takes them through the desert and, and even though there is disobedience by them and there's 40 years of wandering, he eventually brings them into the land under the leadership of Joshua. They defeat the enemies. God gives them victory there in the land and God leaves them there to occupy that land fully and completely but they don't fully obey that and they leave some of the Canaanites there which continue to be a snare in their side and begin to cause them to drift spiritually. As the nation continues to grow, God sends judges to warn them of their disobedience. The book of Judges tells of this story. There's this cycle of disobedience where they rebel against the Lord and God sends enemies to punish them and then they cry out to Yahweh and he comes and saves them. But then they find themselves right back in the same position once things get comfortable again. This nation then cries out in 1 Samuel for a king. They want a king because they reject Yahweh as king over them. They want a king like all the other nations. In other words, they have a worldly mindset rather than a spiritual one. God gives them a king. His name is Saul. And Saul had no heart for the Lord. And so God rejects him and gives them David who had a whole heart for him and served him. And he's the, the pinnacle of godliness within Israel, the one to which all other kings are compared to and the one to whom God gave a special covenant we call the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, in which God says, there is going to be one who comes from you, from your loins, that is going to be the great king of Israel. But David's son, Solomon, disobeyed the Lord, and his heart strayed from him, and the nation split into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And although the northern kingdom had all evil kings, and 
The southern kingdom had some good kings, but also evil kings. It ultimately led that both nations were led into exile. The northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria in 722 BC. This is a historical fact. These aren't just uh, fairy tales that we find in the scriptures. These are real people that lived in real times and according to the rest of world history. The southern kingdom was exiled beginning in 605 with Jerusalem ultimately being destroyed, destroyed in 586 BC. Where we find ourselves in Jeremiah 29 is... In between that first exile of 605 and the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, the people have begun to be carted off to, in this case, Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, being a part of the southern kingdom. And here, the, the people of Israel, God's chosen people, have now been cast off and sent away by the Lord. The very God who redeemed them out of Egypt and gave them this promised land has now kicked them out of the land. According to God's prophets, according to his word, these events were taking place because God was disciplining Israel for her sins. How do you think they felt? As they were carried thousands of miles away from their homeland, ripped away from this chosen peace of land that God had given to them, where their Israel, where Jerusalem sat with the temple in the center of, of Jewish worship, the presence of God there in the temple. No doubt there was sorrow. There was feelings, potential of abandonment by God. He's kicked us out of the land. There's now no more blessings for us, no more prosperity. What are we going to do? Psalm 137 records the sorrow of these Israelites. They said, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of those songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let the, my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. These folks were despairing of hope. Everything they knew was ripped away. And it's precisely at this point that they needed a word from God. They needed a word from Yahweh. And that's what he gave them in the prophet Jeremiah. In one sense, the whole book of Jeremiah is a word to these exiles. But specifically in chapter 29, we get a letter that was sent to the exiles. And so we get to read what was sent to them, what they read there in that foreign land. And so I invite you to follow along as I read. We're going to read verses 1 through 14 in Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people, whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after Jeconiah and the queen, mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah, and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, 
and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elsa, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not de decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray that the to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Let's pray. Father, we ask as we look at this text this morning that you would please illumine our minds. Please teach us what you have for us, Father. May we see you in your character. May we be reminded of the gospel in our own lives. We thank you that you do not forget your people, no matter the circumstances. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, among all the instructions in this letter, and the letter actually goes on, but this hits, I believe it's his statements in verses 10 through 14 that are really the crown jewel of this letter. This paragraph reveals God's heart for his people and reminds them of his unchanging character. But we have to ask ourselves, what does a letter written to the exiles of Israel have for us? How do we read this ancient letter and what do we glean from it? Well, it's true that we are not Israel, that we are not exiled in Babylon, per se. But we too are children of God. We are made children of God by the new covenant ministry of Christ. And so we are God's people in this age, saved in the same way Israel was, through faith in God's promises. And so just as God, through, in the nation of Israel's life, disciplined them in the Old Testament era, He disciplines us as well. There are trying circumstances, there are things He brings into His life in order to discipline us. Hebrews 12 is quite clear about this. It says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Friends, discipline is to be expected in the Christian life. It's 
Discipline is an ongoing process that God works in the lives of his children. Discipline is not an expression of God's anger and his wrath towards us. For Romans 8.1 says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5 says that we're not destined for God's wrath. We've been saved from that. But discipline, rather, is an expression of God's love, as Hebrews 12 tells us. He disciplines those, those whom he loves. God uses difficult circumstances to refine us, to make us more like Christ. And these difficult circumstances reveal our sin. And it's from this sin that we see that we're called to repent. And so he brings these things into our lives, these difficult circumstances, suffering, the revelation of our own sin, to wean us off of our love of self and to help us to love Christ more, to be more conformed to the image of Christ. Now Israel had lots of divine revelation. God had spoken by prophets that what they were going through was part of his discipline. We don't have that same kind of revelation regarding each of our individual circumstances. But we know that God is using all of our lives and all of our circumstances for his glory and for our good. And so I believe as we read these verses in Jeremiah 29, we can read them in light of the suffering and discipline that God uses in each one of our lives. And so this morning, we're going to see three qualities of the Lord in Jeremiah 29 that we need to remember in order to give us comfort in the midst of difficult circumstances in our lives. Let's look at the first quality of the Lord found in verse 10. God keeps his promises faithfully. God keeps his promises faithfully. Verse 10, look at it with me. It says, for thus says the Lord. This is a direct declaration from God. The Lord is speaking. And as we know, when we see the Lord in small caps, it refers to the divine name of Yahweh that's there in the Hebrew. Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth. The one and only true God, as revealed in the scriptures, as we know as the triune God, is the one speaking. Notice also at the beginning of verse 10, the conjunction for. Do you see that? For thus says the Lord. This connects it to what came before. That what he's giving here in verses 10 through 14 is a response to what had already been said previously. And in particular, verse 8 and 9, the Lord warned about the false prophets. Those who were speaking things that were not true, those who had claimed to be speaking for God, but God had not sent them. And so he says, in light of that, in light of those falsehoods that you've heard, listen to this. One of the, one of the examples of the lies that these false prophets had spoken is found in the chapter previous. Turn to 28, chapter 28 of Jeremiah. And look, just look at the first few verses. It says, in that same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, 
I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Here, Hananiah, claiming to speak for God, says that the exile is only going to be two years long. That in two years, God's going to humble Nebuchadnezzar and everything's going to be restored and put back. In addition to this, Hananiah was speaking in Jerusalem, in Israel, but there were also prophets that were out in Babylon that popped up and said, hey, I'm a prophet of God, and they began to speak what they said was for God. And in all of this, God wants to set the record straight. And so verse 10, he says, For thus says the Lord. In contrast to a prediction of a two-year exile, notice what he says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, 70 years is God's timetable. He emphatically says that it's a 70-year exile. This is a repetition of what he has already told Israel in chapter uh, 25, verse 11. He told them that it was going to be 70 years that they would be in exile. And so Israel should not have been confused. But more than just saying and declaring that the exile was going to be 70 years, what is he saying here? He says, when the 70 years are fulfilled or completed, then something's going to happen. He says, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. There's intimate action that the Lord will take once the 70 years is up. No doubt the reminder that these exiles would remain in Babylon for 70 years was somewhat depressing news. The two years sounds a whole lot better. Woohoo, two years, all right, I'll keep my bags packed, I'll be ready to go. 70 years, oh man, this is a long time. In fact, I might pass away in the land of Babylon. And so in light of that depressing news, the Lord then gives a sweet promise. News that is far better than the, the bad news that they had received. That Yahweh, their God, will visit them and fulfill his promise. In other words, listen Israel, God hasn't forgotten about you. Yes, he sent you into exile. Yes, you're feeling the hard hand of his discipline upon you. But he, he hasn't forgotten about you. He will visit you. Visit the verb there means to look at or to see something. There's this idea of an intimate look of the Lord upon his people. God says that when 70 years is up, he will look with redeeming grace upon Israel. He's going to fulfill his promise. He's not going to, it's not going to visit them for more discipline. It's visit them for restoration. I will bring you back to this place. This is, to remind the exile again, this is not new news. In chapter 27, verse 22, they'd already been told that they shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord, and then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. They already knew that they, God was going to visit them, and, and Jeremiah here, in this letter, is reminding them of what had already been said. God promised to bring them back. He was not going to renege on his promise. He was going to fulfill his promise, even if it seemed like it was a long time for that fulfillment to take place. And so Yahweh reminds his people here, 
Listen, when you get to year 50, it might seem like a long time. But listen, I will not forget you. I will come and get you. I will come and rescue you and bring you back. I will visit you. Notice that he doesn't say, I might or I'm thinking about. He says, I will. This is a commitment from the sovereign God to accomplish his purpose for Israel. This promise, this good word that was given, was fulfilled when three groups of exiles returned in different stages in 536 and 457 and 445 B.C. When the exile was up, the decree of Cyrus went out and the exiles were brought back into the land, the land of Israel. Now God's faithfulness is a full expression of his steadfast love. He's faithful to his people because he loves his people. He has set his love upon them and he will not leave them. He had sent Israel into exile because of his love and he's going to go rescue them because of his love. And friends, this is a characteristic of God that we too must not lose sight of. God always keeps his promises. He's never to be doubted. We never have to th wonder if God is going to actually fulfill what he said. He always stands by his word. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says that every word of God proves true. Friends, we cannot doubt what he has said in his word. This is true and he will stand by it. Because of who he is. He's a faithful God. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 9 and 10 says, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Our God is a faithful God and we need never to doubt that. This is why the scriptures call us from cover to cover, time and time again, to trust the Lord. Why can we trust him? Because he's a faithful God. He's trustworthy. He stands by his word. So the first quality that we see of the Lord in this text is that he keeps his promises faithfully. But let's move on to look at the second quality that we see of the Lord in this text. And that is that God makes his plans hopefully. Hopefully. By hopefully, I mean in a hopeful manner. That his plans are full of hope. The plans he makes for his people ultimately are of goodness and not of destruction. And this is where the Lord goes next in verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Since the choosing of Abraham, back in Genesis chapter 12, God has had a plan for Israel and has revealed that through the scriptures. It's been an unfolding plan of God for his people over time. And here, he's drawn attention to that fact. That he has a plan that he's executing. And this isn't, notice that it's not just a general plan. It's very specific. For I know the plans I have for you, the Lord says. These aren't just plans for the world, although he has those. Here, he wants Israel to know 
that he has a set of plans and thoughts that are directed directly for his people. And it's specific in three things, particularly. First, for welfare and not for evil, and to give a future and a hope. These are good things that God has planned for his people. He says, listen, Israel, you might be feeling uh, the pain right now of discipline. But listen, my ultimate goal for you, my ultimate plans for you are good and plans that result in peace in your welfare. I believe that this promise, these plans that the Lord references here are referencing the new covenant and the restoration of Israel that God had planned for his people. These aren't just generic plans that uh, God just wants good for his people in some sort of fuzzy, generic way, but God outlines throughout the prophets very specifically what his plans for Israel in the future are. And we could go all over the Old Testament, but we just have to turn pages to chapter 30 and 31 to see extensive description of what these good plans for Israel are. Look in chapter 30, verse, the first three verses. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you, for behold, days are coming. That tells us that we're talking about the future. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. Go down to verse 8. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke, that's the yoke of the king of Babylon, uh, from your neck, and it will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away, and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you. But of you, I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. To flip to chapter 31, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him. He will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob, and he has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry, and I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Look at verse 17. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. 
and your children shall come back to their own country. Look in verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in the cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O inhabitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together, and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. At this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. Behold, verse 27, the days are coming. Again, a reference to the future, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man, the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have washed over them to pluck, up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, the father have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man eats sour grapes, its teeth shall set on edge. But then look at, we come to the capstone in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the seas so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this Fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord. Then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Friends, this is just in two chapters of Jeremiah. We could go through the rest of the book. We could go through Isaiah and all the, all the other prophets. But these promises are repeated over and over again. That God has a future and a hope for Israel. That he is going to do something great for them. The word welfare that's translated here in Jeremiah 29, flipping back there, 29.11. Welfare is the word shalom, often translated peace. But it incorporates a whole lot more than just peace or just the the cessation of hostilities between two people, like peace in, regard, in, in contrast to war. It speaks of wholeness, of a restored relationship, of, of restored life. And notice it's put in contrast to evil, welfare, not for evil. There's a whole life goodness that God has planned for his people that incorporates every arena of life and existence. Israel cannot question God's motives. He has good welfare plan for Israel. The, it says in 29.11, to give you a future and a hope. Many scholars believe that those uh, define each other. They go together so it could be translated a hopeful future. To give you a hopeful future. 
They could look optimistically to the future because God was going to revive Israel spiritually and restore Israel geographically. God was going to revive Israel spiritually and restore Israel geographically. In other words, we saw in all that we read that there is this repeated plan that God is going to bring them back to the land. Their, their future and their hope, their welfare is very much connected to the piece of dirt in the Middle East. The land, the promised land that God gave them. And not, but not only that, God's not just going to put them in the land, but there's going to be a renewal. There's going to be a revival. Their hearts are going to be different. Notice that it talks about them rejoicing in the goodness of the Lord, being radiant with the goodness of God. And even though Israel came back, as we said, in those, after the exile, God did bring some groups back to the land. Israel was not revived and restored as this, these prophecies tell us. We can even look today. Is Israel radiant with the goodness of God? Are they rejoicing in all that God has for them in Christ? No. Israel is hardened in their unbelief right now, as the scriptures make clear. And so this restoration, this hopeful future is still future. It's still coming to them. But has God forgotten that? No. Will God neglect his people? No. In fact, the whole creation has to fall apart for God to reject Israel. Did you notice that at the end of chapter 31? He says the sun has to cease being in the sky and the moon has to cease being in the sky before I'm going to reject Israel from being a nation before me. God still has plans for Israel to bring them back into the land and to restore them spiritually, something that we know will take place in the latter days and the end times. Can you imagine what this verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, the hope it would have brought to the exiles in, is in Babylon? During a time of discipline from God, they're reminded that God loves them and is working for their good. And friends, is it not easy for us in the midst of the difficult circumstances of our life to doubt the goodness of God? To doubt his good plans for you and for I? And so these, this promise that is here reminds us of all that the scriptures say, all that the New Testament tells us are ours in Christ. Peter says that we have received precious and very great promises. 2 Peter chapter 1. These are plans for total wellness and peace for us as well. Plans for prosperity. Some that will be fulfilled in this life as we're conformed to Christ and some that awaits a future day. Romans 8.29 tells us that we're being conformed to the image of his son. God is doing this in us. He's promised to conform us to Christ. He's promised to help us escape the corruption of the world and the judgment that it will receive. 2 Peter chapter 1. His plans for us include presenting us blameless before his presence with great joy. Jude 24. His plans include saving us from the death of our, that our sin deserved and instead giving us eternal life with him forevermore. His plans for us include entering into Christ's heavenly kingdom. 2 Peter 1 verse 11. His plans for us include reigning with him in his Christ's millennial kingdom. 2 Timothy 2.12 and Revelation 20. Friends, even in the midst of the most trying circumstances that we have in this life, 
Let us not forget the character of our God or the good plans that he has for us. And friends, remind ourselves, do we deserve these good plans? Do we deserve for us, for our future to be hopeful? No. The gospel reminds us that we are great sinners. That we not only have done nothing to earn God's favor and to earn a hopeful future, but in fact, we have done so much to deserve his judgment for all of eternity. We deserve to be punished for our rejection and our rebellion before God. We deserve to be cast off forever. But instead, in his mercy and his grace, through Christ, he's chosen us so that we are among his people and so that we have a future and a hope. We can never forget the gospel. We do not deserve these blessings. So we see that the Lord keeps his promises faithfully. He makes his plans hopefully. The third quality that we see of the Lord in this passage is that God invites prayer unreservedly. God invites prayer unreservedly. In verses 12 and 13. First in verse 12, we see that he listens to our needs. Verse 12, he listens to our needs. It says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. God has plans of shalom for Israel. He wants a restored relationship with them. And so God tells of a time when Israel will once again call out to him and seek the Lord. Again, this is not Israel right now as a nation. But there will be a time when they will call out to him. And they will come running. And when they come running, God will be there. And when they pray... God will listen, he says. I will hear you. When they cry out to him, he will listen. He does not close his ear. He does not turn away. He won't neglect or ignore his people. He won't be frustrated with their continual cries for help. Rather, he invites prayers of his people. And friends, let us not gloss over this simple truth that God loves to hear our prayers as well. His ear is tuned to us to listen to our, our needs. No matter what we bring before him, no matter how often we bring before him, he listens to us. Not because of righteousness that we have done, not because we've been the model saint, but simply because of the grace of Christ. And so, we all are welcome to come. And cast our cares before him. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. We've got to remember that. But not only does he listen to us, but secondly, verse 13, he's always accessible. He's always accessible. Look at 13. He says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Israel had the confidence that when they sought after the Lord, they would find him. This wasn't an endless search. This wasn't the, we have to look under every rock and behind every tree, and we have to do some sort of incantations and hope that he answers us. They have the promise that if they seek after the Lord, that they will find him. God will not hide himself. He will be accessible. But notice that they don't just kind of come haphazardly to God and say, God, you're there, okay, great, and move on. Notice he says, when you... Seek me with all your heart. 
This is going to be a time for Israel when they are cut to the quick, when they, are, they realize their sin, when they recognize all they've done before the Lord and their, their need for salvation. And they're going to come and seek Him with all their heart. The context of this passage then reminds us that this crying out to God and this prayer that he's talking about here is going to be a future repentance of Israel. Repentance in which sinners turn to the living God, seek to find forgiveness for their sin. This is what Israel needs to do and this is what Israel will do. It's prophesied in Leviticus, it's prophesied in Deuteronomy and even here that there will be a time when they will seek after the Lord and they will turn to him in the latter days, in that end times. But the point for us this morning is this, that God delights to hear sinners in repentance. Friends, this truth that was given to Israel is true for sinners today, that if you will seek after the Lord, if you will seek Him with all your heart and desire to find salvation in Christ, He offers salvation to you, and you will find Him. Jesus says that all who come to me, I will by no means cast out. We can have the confidence to know that if we come to Christ, that he's not pushing us away. It doesn't matter what our past is. It doesn't matter what we've done. He will not push us away. We simply need to go to him and recognize our need for him, and he welcomes us. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God delights in saving sinners. And so if you do not know Christ this morning, if you've been living life your own way, stiff-arming God and trying to run life your own way, I invite you this morning to heed the exhortation and the encouragement of these verses and cry out to God and find salvation in Him. Don't continue to try to find life anywhere else. Don't try to seek happiness and 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 fulfillment in anything that this, li this life and this world has to offer, know that it's only found in Jesus Christ. Turn to him. Listen to the words of Isaiah 55. He says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Why? that the Lord may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Forgiveness is offered to all who come to Christ. Let that be today. Do not wait until tomorrow. Tomorrow's not guaranteed to you. Tomorrow, as they say, is the devil's day. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you have to answer for. Do not Presume upon the grace of God another day. Recognize the mercy that he's given to you all these years of your life. And turn to him while he may be found. And he will be found. So we've seen that God keeps his promises faithfully. He makes his plans, hopefully invites prayer unreservedly. And finally this morning, we see in this passage that God disciplines his people purposefully. He disciplines his people purposefully. Verse 14. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. 
Again, the temptation, as we've said, is for exiled Israel to think that God has abandoned them and ceased to love them. And so God strengthens them by reminding them of a promise that has been repeated throughout the Old Testament that when they are in, scattered in those foreign lands, that God will visit them and bring them back. Just as the Israelites of old thought that God had left them in the desert to die after Egypt, so these exiled Israelites could think the same way. But God declares that the purpose of his discipline is not so that Israel would be smothered and destroyed, but that they would be restored. God has a redemptive and restorative purpose in his discipline. Notice the verbs that he uses. I will restore. I will gather. I will bring you back. God wants to bring his people back. And this is the purpose of Israel, as we said, it's not just a geographical relocation, but it's a spiritual revival. He wants to give them a new heart as they enter the land. Even though he drove them away, God goes and gets them. And he's making that promise with his people. This promise that is here is just a reiteration of a promise already given in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and Deuteronomy chapter 30. We don't have time to to go there, but you read the first few verses of Deuteronomy 30, and this reality was already laid out. The concept of the exile, the concept of, of God bringing them back was set in stone even before Israel went into the land. God surely had a plan for Israel. But friends, just as Israel is tempted to think that God had abandoned them, we can be tempted that way too. But our God is so intimately acquainted with our ways. He loves us and cares for us. He wants to help his people. And he is strong and powerful enough to deal with whatever comes our way. The God that we see working so tenderly with Israel here in, Deuteron or in Jeremiah 29 is the same God that we worship to, that we pray to, that we rely on in all of life's circumstances. And so we need to remember that God has a purpose in our suffering as well and in the discipline that he sends our way. Let's end this morning by turning to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, I already quoted a few verses this morning. Notice that he earlier read verses 5 and 5 through 7. It says, The Lord disciplines the ones whom he loves. And he's just picking up in verse 7. He says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all you in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Friends, 
we must remember that just as God had a redemptive and restorative purpose for discipline in the life of Israel, so God has that purpose for us in our lives. The pain, the suffering, the difficulty that comes our way is the chiseling of God in our lives that we would no longer rely upon ourselves, that we would repent of sin that we've hung onto and that we would turn towards Christ, that we'd be shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. And it says that it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness if we'll be trained by it. And so we must remember that discipline itself is proof of our sonship. It's proof that we are a child of God, friends. Discipline is not proof that God has rejected us. It's proof that God loves us. And we've got to remind ourselves of that because our feelings will tell us the opposite, right? It's because he loves us that he takes you where you do not want to go in order to produce in you what you could not produce on your own. This discipline is not pleasant, but it results in something pleasant for his glory Friends, if life is difficult for you right now, struggling to see which way is up, the pain being real, confusion, distorting reality, I encourage you to look to the Lord. Be reminded of his character as we saw in Jeremiah 29. That God is doing something in your pain. That God is doing something in your struggles, in your difficulty. And it's for your good because he wants you to share in his holiness. God is disciplining you out of his generosity. He wants you to share in what he has. But friends, it requires a painful process. And I know it hurts. And it's hard to go through. We just want to get out from under it when we're in the middle of it. But God has greater and bigger plans for us. And we must trust him because he is faithful to his promises. And every word of his proves true. And he is trustworthy to the end. Amen? So let us be a people in the midst of the difficulty that we have, that we suffer differently because we know we have a God who loves us and is working for our good. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness. We thank you for the reminder of this text that just as you have plans for Israel that you will not forget and you will not go back on, so you have plans for us through Christ. That you have redeemed us, that you have united us to your Son and you are conforming us into his image. And I pray, Father, that for all those who are here this morning that are suffering. The pain and the confusion of life is hard to grapple with. I pray that you would give them clarity from your word this morning. Remind them of your character. Remind them that you are working in their lives. Father, may you help us to encourage one another, to exhort one another, to comfort one another with the words of Scripture that we may be able to stand, that we may be able to endure. And we thank you for your love and your kindness to us through Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.